You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Thank you and good morning. I bring you greetings from Redemption Hill Church in Stewartville, the congregation that I am blessed to pastor. Um, and I, you know, one thing I've enjoyed hearing and reading different missionary um, biographies, especially one called God's Smuggler. Have any of you read that one? Um, about a man smuggling Bibles, uh, leading a group smuggling Bibles into the Soviet bloc countries. What an encouragement it, al- it always was when he could meet with a congregation who was isolated from other believers, but there would be this person who would come in and say, believers from other places in the world are praying for you guys. Um, just to help them, I mean, it would help them realize we're not in this alone, even though it felt so much, so much of the time like they were in this alone. So that's part of what we get together for, right, on a Sunday morning is, and other times during the week is to remember that we're not alone. We have another, co- a, a whole other rest of a congregation um, following the Lord with us. And I think it's also really important for us to remember that there's a lot of other congregations following the Lord too. So it's a joy to be here and meet with some other brothers and sisters. Um, and I want you to know that Redemption Hill loves you guys and is praying for you guys. Um, and looking forward to times down the road when maybe we'll specifically serve the Lord together before heaven when we all worship him together. Um, and then we're united in a new heaven and a new earth. So um, we're going to go to James chapter 2. This morning, verses 14 through 26. Uh, Mike uh, initially asked if I would just continue on through Judges, um, because we went through that recently uh, at Redemption Hill. Then he was having so much fun going through it and looking ahead to how he was going to be in the middle of the Gideon story. Is that still where you are? Um, He said, uh, you can't jump in on that. So you're going to have to figure out something else. And so uh, we are going through James there now, and this passage seemed um, helpful and encouraging. And so we will go through James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Let me read that for us, and then we'll dive in. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Father, we ask just one more time that uh, you would be with us uh, applying the various portions of this passage to our hearts as each one of us needs. Let there be encouragement where encouragement is needed, conviction where conviction is needed. 
uh, assurance where assurance is needed. May questions be asked where they need to be asked. And would it all serve to point us to you through your son Jesus in true saving faith. So we ask in his name, amen. Well, we live in a very consumer-oriented society. That's no surprise to anyone. Uh, Meaning that for any one of the things that we might want or need, there are probably a dozen different companies out there marketing their product that's designed to meet that want or need that we have. And so... Uh, we're full of, the world is full of advertisements um, arguing to us why we should go with one particular product over another because this product is going to meet our needs better than the others will. We're used to focusing on what we want, what we need, uh, and having people come to us uh, to make their pitch. And it's easy for that approach to life to bleed over into our understanding of faith and what our lives of faith are all about. People approach their faith in much the same consumer kind of way. Maybe I'm looking for community, relationships with other people. And so... My approach to the life of faith is about finding community. Maybe I'm looking to do some good in the world and and help those less fortunate. So my approach to the life of faith is oriented around that. Maybe I like learning, education. The Bible is an inexhaustible wealth of things to learn, and that's just one of the many religious religious texts in the world, and so I go to religion because I like to learn. We could go on and on, uh, filling out a list of reasons for which people participate in what they would call the life of faith. What James does right at the beginning of this passage is identifies for us that the life of faith is not just another consumer adventure. It has a very specific purpose. The ultimate need is met through faith in Christ. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Salvation. That's the point of faith. That's the non-negotiable. That's what we need. That's what faith is all about. True faith is to be all about. It is easy for us as followers of Jesus to get distracted from this. It was easy for James's initial audience to get distracted from this. James is a half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to believers who are scattered in the dispersion. So they're primarily from a Jewish background, including some Gentiles. The Christian faith still looks very Jewish. They they have a keen awareness of how all the uh, Old Testament familiar uh, teachings and law and traditions were were fulfilled in Jesus and were pointing forward to him. Uh, And yet they have increasingly been rejected, these followers of Jesus, by both the Jewish establishment and the Roman Empire. They're no longer able to find sanctuary um, within claiming to be uh, part of the Jewish nation, which would have given them some sanctuary from Rome. Uh, They are, in many cases, running for their lives from all of their familiar surroundings and friends and community. And suddenly they may be tempted to ask the question, wait a minute, 
this isn't what I thought the life of faith following Jesus was all about. I thought I was going to have community, and now I've had to run away. I thought life was going to become more ordered as I followed the king of the universe, and it's just become more chaotic. They need to be reminded that ultimately the life of faith is about salvation. It's about salvation from the wrath of God. The ultimate point of faith is that it saves from God's wrath. And so James is going to uh, encourage these believers in this section about how their life of faith following Jesus is about, um, and the salvation that is at the heart of that faith cannot be detached from the good works to which they have been called. James is going to fill out their understanding of what the salvation for which God has saved them is all about. Uh, it would be tempting for these believers in trying circumstances as they were to say, well, yes, I believe in Jesus. I, I know that he is the long-promised Messiah, that he is the Savior of all. But considering how hard circumstances are, can't we let some of the other things slide a little bit? And James is full of kind of Proverbs-type wisdom calling us to what the wise life of faith looks like. Um, even amid the backdrop of trials. <clears throat> I think this is a timely passage for us as we hopefully are on the tail end, on the heels of the worst of this um, COVID-19 um, trial that has affected all of us. Um, maybe amid this, You were questioned, or you were challenged to ask, what, what is my life of faith all about? Some of the things that you liked most, that you considered most crucial to your life of faith, may have been turned upside down. What is it really all about? Well, James is calling all of us, amid various kinds of trials, to the life of faith that because we trust in Jesus, flows out in consistent endurance in the good works that this book talks about. I'm not going to be able to go over all of them. commend to you to just sit down this, this afternoon and read through the book of James, just praying that God would um, instruct you on where encouragement that you're doing well is due or where conviction is due. But the point is uh, that true faith that really saves from God's wrath is never absent of works. The works are evidences of such deliverance from God's wrath because God delivers us not just from the penalty of sin but from the pervasiveness of sin in our lives. The point of this faith that saves is not just justification but also sanctification, being set apart in holiness. God is not going to just justify someone without also beginning to sanctify them, to produce works that imitate his character. And a person who opposes or ignores this idea demonstrates that he or she doesn't really understand 
how faith connects to our problem from which we're being saved or the solution. Here's what I mean. Our problem is that our sin has alienated us from God and incurred his just wrath. Faith connects to this problem in that sin flows from choosing one's own destructive way over God's living way. So the problem is that we haven't had faith. And the wages for such treasonous unbelief is death. So the problem is all about faith. Faith also connects to God's solution in at least a couple of ways. First of all, faith is the means by which God credits Christ's righteousness to the believer. Um, and so that is God's uh, appointed means in which the righteousness provided by Christ will be applied to anyone who believes in him. So faith connects to the solution in, in, in that that's the means by which we're forgiven. But also, faith is the restoration of choosing God's living way over our own destructive way. So faith is not just a means of being forgiven. Faith is a return to trusting God as we should have in the first place. So to claim a genuineness of faith that is sufficient to justify, to bring forgiveness, while still trying to hold on to living life one's own selfish way, shows that there isn't really true faith. Does that make sense how those go together? And yet because we tend to have a consumer approach to faith sometimes, we tend to think, well, if Forgiveness of sins is what I value in my life of faith, and that's what I'm going to focus on. Faith is about forgiveness. And ignore that there's much more to the life of faith. As James is going to emphasize, there's a need for walking in the works for which God has designed. And so what James is going to do in this uh, section is argue that faith True faith will not be alone in one's life, but will be accompanied by works. And we'll just walk through his arguments together. First of all, in verses 15 and 16, he gives an analogy. So he's, he's wanting to help us understand, the, get the picture of something that's useless. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, so we're talking about a person who, poorly clothed doesn't mean that they're out of style. It means that they don't have enough clothes to keep them covered and keep them warm. This is almost a completely foreign concept to us uh, in this blessed land in which we live. Um, but it was not unfamiliar to the people to whom James was first writing. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, is, if it does not have works, is dead. We have, uh, if we were to have someone come to this gathering today, not able to even put enough clothes on their back, hadn't eaten in a week, and we said, hey, we love you. We want you to know that, boy, I hope you find a good meal out there today. Be blessed. It would be preposterous. James is saying, that's how preposterous it is for a person to say that they have faith that isn't changing how they live. They have to go hand in hand. The faith that 
justifies is also the faith that sanctifies. It's a change of my orientation toward God. Well, as any good teacher, James anticipates that there might be some objection to that strong point that he's making. And so he mentions this anticipated objection in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The beginning of verse 18 is perhaps uh, James imagining another person entering the conversation, so to speak. And he imagines this person saying, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, James, you're being awfully dogmatic here. What if there's just faith people and works people? What if some people more focus on uh, learning more about Jesus and um, uh, they're just amazed by the nuances of the message? And there's other people who aren't so interested in that, but they're more uh, focused on doing the good works. James, are you really going to get after the person who's not so into the works when, when they're just more of the, the head person, the faith person? Maybe you've known people like this. Maybe you've been a person like this who when God held your feet to the fire about some opportunity for actively serving him and serving others, you avoided it and excused it saying, well, that, that's just not really my thing. I'm sad to say that in the years that I've had pastoring in various congregations, there have been a few instances like this where, where I've known of someone being specifically asked to meet a need that they had the opportunity to meet for someone else. And this was exactly their response. Well, that's not really my focus. Do you have a class I could teach? James says... You try to show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What are you going, upon what basis are you going to argue that you really trust God if you don't actually go ahead and follow him in the ways that he calls you to live and to love and to serve? Some people like to use the analogy of sitting on a chair um, as a demonstration of faith. I'm sure you've heard this used before. You know, do you believe that this chair, you know, chair sitting right there, I could look at this chair over here. Do I believe that that chair will hold me? I can, I can say that I believe it till I'm blue in the face. It's not until I actually go over and sit down in the chair that I've showed my faith in it. I don't show my faith that the chair will hold me by giving a detailed physics explanation of how the structure of the chair is sufficient to hold me. I show my faith in the chair by sitting in it. And so James says, you don't show that you have faith in God merely by knowing all of the ins and outs of different theological nuances and knowing all his commands. You show your faith in God by going ahead and living for him. James then continues the imagined debate with a person who objects to this in verse 19. He anticipates them saying, but you don't understand. 
My theology is impeccable. I'm a believer. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I mentioned this is a largely a, a Christian audience with a strong Jewish background, and James is probably referring here to the Shema. Um, coming from Deuteronomy 6, the Jews would recite this every day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a key confession, not just in their gatherings together, but in their individual lives. James says, you believe that God is one? Great. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. When Jesus came to a new area, it was often the demons who correctly identified him first, yet they were not seeking to follow him. James, therefore, anticipating this objection, says, Great, uh, your faith is at least demonic. You see how he's heaping up the arguments for why an intellectual assent to spiritual truth is not enough. James is not here describing a tension between faith and works. James is describing a tension between true faith, which leads to works, and false faith, which does not lead to works. James is describing a faith in Jesus corresponding to being born again, as opposed to a faith in one's religious endeavors corresponding to self-confidence. And there's a big difference. James is calling out the person who considers themselves to be religious, but it, their true love for God and for others does not show up in their life. It's reminiscent of the end of chapter 1, uh, where he says, the one who claims to be religious but does not bridle his tongue, that person's religion is worthless. True religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. True faith flows out in works. And now James' argument continues to build and he goes to two striking and familiar analogies from the Old Testament. He's going to mention Abraham and Rahab as examples of those whose faith was demonstrated by their works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, for obvious reasons, this passage has caused uh, many students of the Bible almost to pull their hair out because it seems to be, at first read, such a direct contradiction of what the Apostle Paul says in such places as Romans, when he specifically says, we are justified by faith apart from works. And James appears to say the exact opposite. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This has led to all kind of different uh, 
interpretations. Uh, this passage of James, for instance, was one of the um, key scriptural texts that was used as the Roman Catholic Church was arguing against the claims of Martin Luther. It led to such Catholic teachings as the idea of congruent merit, the idea that our good works cooperate with our faith and with the work of Christ, so that those, those are actually all working together so that our actual final righteousness that comes from our good works and our faith and the work of Christ, they all cooperate together to ultimately earn the eternal favor of God. And I want to be charitable because a passage like this is tough to wrestle with. The key to understanding it though, is to understand what both Paul and James were arguing. Paul actually wasn't arguing that works have nothing to do with the whole process of our salvation. And James isn't arguing that faith is not the means of us being justified. What's happening here? is that Paul, in, in his letters, focused on how a person is declared righteous, how a person is declared justified by God. While James focuses on how that person's justification is demonstrated, how it shows up in their lives. Uh, John Calvin uh, explained the apparent differences this way. He said, it shouldn't, surpri it shouldn't surprise us when James doesn't go over the same ground as the Apostle Paul. There's different areas that need to be emphasized. Paul emphasizes some of them in some places. James emphasizes some of them in other places. And so as, for instance, William Tyndale summarized it, he said, we are justified before God by faith alone. We are declared righteous before God by faith alone. But our justification before others is by our works because they can't see our heart. How are we going to show that there is a, a change of heart on the inside corresponding with new birth, forgiveness by God? Well, it's going to have to show up on the outside. And that's what James is emphasizing. Clearly, Paul did believe that works were important. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he said, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He assumes that faith is going to flow out in loving actions. Or in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to continue in sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Paul also says there are going to need to be, a, there's going to be a change of actions that corresponds with our faith in Jesus. So I don't believe it's inconsistent with Paul for James to explain things the way he does, even in such dramatic language as to say, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What he is emphasizing is that the way that our new relationship with God shows up is not just by our claim to what we believe, but by how it shows up in what we do. Abraham is his first example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. He mentions two specific instances from Genesis. What's mentioned in, in verse 23 
uh, refers to Genesis 15, where God made promises to Abraham that his children would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, actually was the um, specific thing. He took Abraham outside and said, look at, the, look at the sky. Can you count the stars? This is how many offspring you're going to have. This is before Abraham and Sarah had had any children. They're very old. And the comment there in Genesis 15 is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James quotes Genesis chapter 15 there. But, James says, that needed to be demonstrated later in Abraham's life. And if you know the, the story between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, Abraham's walk of faith had a lot of ups and downs. He did some horrendous things that demonstrated remarkable lapses of faith in those chapters. Even selling his wife to another man. There needed to be a moment that demonstrated Abraham really does trust God no matter what. And that moment is mentioned in verse 21 here of James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, he had already been declared righteous by God back in Genesis 15. But that needed to be, that, that new life with God needed to be demonstrated in, in a way, and, and that happened when God told him, take your only son, your son Isaac, who you love, up onto this mountain and kill him. And Abraham was ready to do it until God stopped him and said, you've passed the test. You've showed that you trust me. So that was example number one. If Abraham had come up with excuses for why, why taking Isaac to the mountain doesn't work right now, if he had never actually gone through with it, he would not have showed his faith in God. Instead, he demonstrated that he believed that even if he killed Isaac, God could raise him from the dead. His faith was true. The, the second example that James gives is Rahab. In the same way, verse 25, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, you've just gone through this recently. Uh, no, you didn't go through Judges really or Joshua really recently. It's just been Judges. Anyways, you're familiar with the story from Joshua chapter 2 of how the two Hebrew spies were sent into the land of Canaan, uh, particularly to the city of Jericho, uh, to uh, evaluate their prospects for attacking the city and what the routes would be. And uh, they took shelter with Rahab. And as they're talking to her, she told them clearly, I know that your God is the true God. I know that you're going to be successful in overthrowing the city. And I just ask that you would have mercy on me and my family. She was risking everything. She was turning her back on the city, on the security, on all of the, um, everything that she had known in that city by helping the people of God particularly these two spies, when they were in need. Her faith in the God of Israel was demonstrated by how she received these messengers and sent them out another way. And so James concludes, verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A person who claims to have faith but is not actively living it out, can have no more claim to living faith than a body, than a corpse laying there without breath in it, can claim to be alive. 
So I think James has made his case very convincingly. I don't want to be found before God without a true and living faith. And so the question that comes to my mind is, okay, James, I agree. Faith without works is dead. It needs to show up in my life. So which works? Which works need to be in my life? Aren't we all kind of hardwired to have a list? Okay, I I do want to demonstrate. James, you've convinced me. God, you've convinced me. I want to demonstrate that I'm yours. Which works? It's a good question. It's also a dangerous question if we're just looking to make a list of boxes to check in. We're, we're each prone, I think, to be out of balance in one of two ways. Some of us are prone to focus on the works in which we're coming up the shortest, and so we're tempted to live in self-condemnation for the works that aren't showing up as much while we ignore the other good areas of growth that all of our brothers and sisters around us could see. Others might tend to focus on the works toward which they're most inclined, the ones that come easiest, and then they live in a sense of self-justification while not being aware of their shortcomings. I wonder which you tend to be. So which works? Well, I think maybe the simplest answer would be to say, the works which flow most specifically from your faith in Jesus. We all have areas of of obedience to God and living according to his way that are going to come easier to us, more naturally. We all have areas in which that obedience is going to come harder. Which works? The ones that are most naturally harder, the ones that only make sense in your life because of your faith in Jesus. I think if you were to ask Jesus personally, face-to-face, okay, which works? He would discern your heart, like we see him do over and over again in the Gospels, right? He would discern your heart, and then he would focus on something that revealed an idol or called you to a needed change because he's for our good. He doesn't want us to stay stuck in the same old patterns. He will call us to growth and greater health. We saw him do that over and over again in his interactions with people in Scripture. So he would probably call you to some costly obedience. One man summarizes or suggests some possibilities. Maybe he would call you to befriend a friendless person when it's probably going to impact your popularity by associating with them. Maybe he calls you to make the most of your singleness and serve in the unique ways you can while single when you'd rather be married. Maybe he calls you to remain married when you'd rather have a divorce. Maybe he calls you to remain sober when you'd rather depend on a substance. Maybe he calls you to make peace with someone when you'd rather vent your anger. Maybe he calls you to sacrifice a dream that you'd rather pursue for your own agenda. But it doesn't seem to be the path that he's laying before you. I already mentioned that chapter 1, verses 26 to 27 specifically include the works of bridling one's tongue, visiting the needy, keeping oneself unstained from the world. Or maybe we could glance back to verses 15 and 16 where he mentions that situation of a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking daily food and how the response is not, 
be warmed and filled. That's useless. It might not just be clothing and food that someone needs. A person can be rich in time that they can share with those who are time-starved, barely keeping up with the responsibilities of life. A person can be rich in a certain skill, and so share it with those who are lacking in that skill and need the help. Maybe it's building. Maybe it's organizing. A person can be rich in enthusiasm, and so share that with those who are discouraged. And just make a point of putting your arm around the, the discouraged person in life. Encourage them along. What kind of good works flowing out of your faith in Christ might God be calling you to? One final question. What does a person do if he or she doesn't see these works in his or her life? What if, as you hear a passage like this, you say, I don't really know that I can point to anything that I could say specifically flows out of my faith in Jesus? What should I do? Well, perhaps the problem is that you didn't know the expectation. Maybe it had just been, maybe, you, maybe your um, surroundings have been such that, that you have only really understood the need of trusting Jesus as the one who paid the penalty for your sins. You didn't know of the expectation that that would flow out and works. Well, now you do. Keep your eyes open. Maybe the reason the works haven't been there is because you didn't know what to do. Well, keep learning. Keep studying God's word. Stay connected with other believers. They'll help you learn. Maybe you've known that there were supposed to be works in your life, but you just haven't been motivated. The solution, once again, is to look at God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, let me close with one example of what that might look like. A clear example of the works that we are, that flow out of faith in Jesus in the book of James is care for the needy. And so perhaps a person would say, yeah, I just don't see that concern in my heart at all. What might be the solution? Well, you might look at God's heart for the needy. You might look throughout the Old Testament and the Old Testament law about how it was actually illegal for a farmer to harvest all the produce out of their field or vineyard. Instead, they're supposed to leave some for those who were in need. And then, within the Old Testament uh, nation of Israel, there was also tithes that were collected from the harvest that were in part used to supply for the needy. You might notice throughout the Old Testament prophets how often God rebuked the nation of Israel for abandoning those laws. Even in Ezekiel, saying that they were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in their neglect for the needy then you might look at the life of Jesus and realize that as he performed miracles, if his point had only been to demonstrate that he was God, he could have done remarkable demonstrations of his power that didn't necessarily help anyone. But how did Jesus demonstrate who he was? He helped the poor, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the dumb. Why? Because he loves to heal the broken. Because he loves to help those in need. 
because Jesus is the true Israel who was following through where the Old Testament nation had failed. He was keeping God's righteousness. He cares for the needy. And as you consider God's character, as you consider it displayed in Jesus Christ, you might find your heart suddenly full of enthusiasm where there hadn't been before. That type of a change because of looking at God in the face of Jesus Christ could be duplicated throughout a whole host of areas in our lives. And so with James, let me read finally from 2 Corinthians 13.5 as the Apostle Paul gives a similar exhortation. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Our Lord Jesus, it is an amazing thing to be the body, to be your body, the body of Christ. Here, left here, to do your works until you return. And so we confess with James with the rest of scripture that you save us you deliver us from divine wrath not just as that as an as a end in itself but you save us as your workmanship that we might be full of good works your works fill us with joy as we grow in living as your body doing as you would do because we have been saved from the wrath of god by you amen you've been listening to bethany radio a production of bethany bible church in leroy minnesota